I'm going to try and uh, keep with the Sephardi pronunciation when I can. You'll correct me if I get something wrong. <laughs> your, your warm welcome and your general welcome to me on this uh, Chaburaz had me scrambling around for any possible Sephardic heritage I might be able to unearth. I found there was some ambiguity. I know my father's family argue which side of the Poland-Lithuania border we originated. Well, my mother's family, we've got the which side of the Munkach River, but none of this really helped. But luckily, Sino informed me recently, I don't know if this is true. I'm not going to get into any trouble here. He told me that Sephardi heritage apparently is determined by ideology as much as genealogy. So I can, in theory, identify as an ideological Spanish and Portuguese Sephardi, which is very kind. Again, I don't want to start a fight here. <laughs> I can see not everyone looks so happy. I hope I'm not going to get kicked off even before I start the Chabura. But uh, anyway, in Chodesh Elul with the extra Sidichot, I think it's maybe not the best time to discover this. <laughs> Moving on to the ideology. So in terms of ideology and the orientation of my Jewish thought, I'm certainly very much drawn after the Rambam and the approach that he represents, not just in terms of his relationship with modernity, but for the way in which he provides a system which organizes the mass of Jewish sources. Before I studied more, before I really studied Moret and Vuchim and the various Hagdamot of the Rambam, Judaism was a mass of weird and wonderful teachings floating around the pages of my mind. Rambam really systemized these for me. He provided a framework with which I can relate to and make sense of these often diverse teachings in the Jewish tradition. I find that even when I'm not actually working with Rambam's particular conclusions on a topic, I'm pretty much always utilizing his perspective and his broader framework for understanding the various branches of Torah and Jewish thought. My book, Judaism Reclaimed, which was being so generously described a few minutes ago, attempts to follow Rambam's rational blueprint and organizational framework. When I examine a delicate area of Jewish thought, I look for Rambam's guidance as to the central features and the main questions which underpin it. And this is really what I intend to do with tonight's subject, the Torah's view on governing systems. We find an astonishingly wide range of views from Machachamim as to which form of rulership the Torah endorses. I hope to provide some kind of framework within which these approaches can, to some extent, be related to one another. So the obvious place to start is with the Pasuk, we have uh, in Parashat Shofetim, we have Parashat Amalek, we've got the, the laws of the king. So I'll just uh, read them briefly. Um, when you come into the land that uh, Hashem is giving to you, you settle it, and you will say, I will appoint for myself a king, like all the nations around me. You shall surely appoint for yourself a king. So this this phrase, Som Tasim Alech you shall surely appoint for yourself a king, is the subject of controversy already in the time of the Mishnah. We see there's a discussion in the Mishnah in Sanhedrin as to whether this is chava, a binding obligation, or reshut, it's permission to appoint a king. The majority of the Rishonim, including Rambam, Ramban, Ran, Radak, Ralbag, the majority of the, of the authorities appear to endorse the opinion of Rabbi Huda over that of Rabbi Nahorai, that it is an obligatory mitzvah to appoint a king. And by extension, we'll be able to see from that that the Torah's favored form of government is a monarchy. There is, however, a minority view championed by Abarbanel, Ibn Ezra, Sephorno, who adopt Rabbi Nahorai's position that the pasuk, som tasim melech, is simply permitting rather than obligating the nation to appoint a king. Barbanel stance is of particular interest. He goes beyond saying that appointing a king is not obligatory. He compares it to the controversial biblical phenomenon of the Yafat Torah, the beautiful captive woman that we read about last week. The Torah begrudgingly permits the Yafat Torah to a Jewish soldier under very specific conditions and as a matter of damage limitation, so to speak, in the lawless arena of the battlefield. This is the most appropriate comparison to the mitzvah to appoint a king, according to Barbanel. 
Just as the Torah advises strongly against a soldier taking your fat Torah and warns of dire consequences, so too, in the view of a Barbanel, the Torah is begrudgingly permitting the appointment of a king. If you enter the land and insist, then okay, go ahead and appoint a king for yourself. And just as Jewish tradition warns that your fat Torah leads to unhealthy and even tragic family situations, so too we find Shmuel Hanavi warning the nation of the impending disasters that monarchy will bring, how the king will exploit the people for his own private purposes. He says it will take your sons for soldiers, your daughters for perfumers, I think it says. It will take your land, your cattle. So we see Barbanel's comparison to Yafat Torah in two different ways. The fact that it is only begrudgingly permitted and it comes with a very strong health warning. In addition, Abarbanel draws upon both biblical precedents. We see the Jewish kings, with few exceptions, were overwhelmingly deemed to be failures. And also Abarbanel's personal experience of the vastly superior system of governance, which he witnessed in the Italian Republican city-states, as compared to the monarchies of Spain and Portugal. And note for the Americans, Republican here means democratic. It's not a subliminal political endorsement or anything like that. He saw that the Italian more democratic states were run and were functioning in a far superior way to the monarchies. And Abarbanel therefore understands that the Torah's apparent command to appoint a king is It's based on the Torah's recognition of human frailty. It's not an obligatory system of governance. Many, perhaps all of us, have grown up in Western democracies and will naturally gravitate towards the Barbanel's position. Monarchies and dictatorships have become synonymous with despots, human rights abuses, and oppressed, underdeveloped societies. Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, of course, is a happy and wonderful exception, but in general, monarchies, dictatorships have got a very negative association. And we can understand and we will probably gravitate towards a Barbanel's understanding. However, it's difficult to reject totally the position of Rambam and the majority of authorities who took the Tanakh at face value in this regard and saw the Torah as endorsing, as commanding, as obligating the monarchy as an ideal. Therefore, in this case, I find that there's a framework, a key, a perspective which allows us to organize and relate to the entire gamut of approaches by Jewish authorities to monarchy. It's provided by Nitziv, Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin of Velozhen. It's based on a close reading of the verses. He notes that the obligation to appoint a king is introduced with Amarta, and you will say, I will appoint a king for myself like all the nations, then Somtasim, go ahead and appoint a king. And he says there's a parallel pasuk, a very similarly constructed verse. Va'amarta, and you will say, achol basa, I want to eat meat. Then, v'zavachta kashetivitira, you can go and slaughter meat as I have commanded you. It's not an obligation to go around slaughtering animals whenever you see them. Based on certain situations, when meat is appropriate, when meat is required, you can go and slaughter an animal in the right way. But not that is the it is a commandment, and the Tzith draws parallel between these two psukim. Just as the command to slaughter animals for meat is dependent upon the people and their desires, their requirements, it's not a permanent obligation, so too is the command to appoint a king. Meaning, if you are going to appoint a king, this is the way in which it must be done. We'll see soon exactly what form of guidance the Torah is seeking to provide here. Nitziv understands that this verse makes a mitzvah conditional upon the approval and request of the nation. Only under such circumstances should a king be appointed when the people come along and demand a king. He proposes the Torah's perspective with regard to the practical implementation of its command to appoint a king is deliberately ambiguous. If we evaluate, he says, if we evaluate the different forms of societies and political climates, in some situations, a monarchy is necessary to unite and to lead a nation, to stop it from falling apart, from degenerating into total anarchy. A case in point, if we look at the final years of the Shoftim, the book of Shoftim, the, I guess, 
the last 10 chapters or so where we find idolatrous and immoral practices appearing to become widespread because the text keeps repeating there was no king in those days and everyone did as they liked the king was necessary the king was required in order to pull everything together furthermore a number of Jewish kings, for instance, David, Yehoshaphat, Asa, Yoshiao, Chizkiyahu, a number of kings stand out for the record of uniting the nation behind strong religious programs and upholding justice. It's hard to imagine that the national repentance drives instituted by Yoshiahu or Chizkiyahu would have been so effective had they not been established and enforced by the strong central authority of a king. Such societies clearly benefited and were suited to the presence of a strong monarchy. At other times, however, Nativ tells us, we find that people are unable to handle the power of a king, such a strong central authority. And appointing a king in such a situation would therefore be strictly forbidden. Nativ goes as far as to say forbidden as pikoach nefesh, it's a danger to life. For this reason, even though appointing a king is, he says, a mitzvah, it is not an absolute and permanently binding mitzvah for all times and places, because its suitability depends on the political situation of the nation. Authority can only be centralized under a single monarch and dynasty when the people themselves seek a king, having recognized the benefits that this can bring. So to summarize where this leaves us, we have the Rambam and the, well, spearheading the majority view of the Rishonim, that appointing a king is always an obligatory command. We have a barbanel addressing the practical realities that the vast majority of time, the king will lead to abuse of power and constrain rather than promote the interests of the nation. And then we find there's this framework of the Nativ, which is to an extent able to include both Rambam and a barbanel within his system. We can take a step back and see that, yes, in some eras, in some countries, in some places, you need a strong central authority to step in and stop the society from completely degenerating. And other times, appointing a king would be would be extremely dangerous. So we see another point that the, which is emphasized by the Nitziv, which is that the suitability and the obligation, the mitzvah of appointing a king, is very much dependent on the people, the realities, the societal and political realities of the people. This is an idea which is developed further by Rabbi Dr. Joshua Berman in his book, Created Equal, How the Bible Broke with Ancient Political Thought. Rabbi Berman points out how revolutionary the Torah's conception of monarchy would have been at the time of the Torah. This is something we're going to go to in a little bit. The nation as a whole he says, constitutes the most important body of authority. They're the ones charged with appointing a king. And such appointment is only required, only permitted, if the national situation needs the people to request a king. So that's the basic framework as to the different opinions as to the desirability of which governing system and how we can provide some kind of framework to reconcile, so to speak, or to at least to bring them within a system which we can see when each one can be applicable. Are there any questions at this point? Okay, we move on. So I'd now like to look into the biblical concept of monarchy that Rambam and others regard as an obligatory command, remembering that's the mainstream position, that monarchy is some kind of obligatory command. What kind of monarchy is it that the Torah envisages? So I'm going to look at a broader idea for a moment. One of the points that I emphasize in Judaism Reclaimed is the importance of applying Rambam's broader methodology and approach in light of the information that is available to us now. Nowhere is this more relevant than in the use of our knowledge of the ancient Near Eastern societies and their political and religious structures to help provide context to the Torah and highlight its agenda. For example, Rambam describes in Morinevuchim how the presentation of the Torah's blessings and curses deliberately mirrors the promises and threats made by pagan priests. The Torah copies it and uses it back on the people to show that it's not the pagans and their priests and their blessings and curses that we must fear, but the blessings and curses of God and of following the Torah or not. 
Rambam cites ancient sources to demonstrate how people were promised peace and prosperity, rainfall, crop abundance, if they worshipped in the pagan temples. This is why, according to Rambam, the Torah's general teachings regarding rewards and punishment are deliberately couched in words and phrases with which the Jewish people were familiar, even though these words in reality represent a far broader concept of reward and punishment. Similarly, regarding the Ta'amea mitzvot, the reasons for the mitzvahs, we see Rambam highlights the functions of most of the mitzvot in the third section of Morin Avuchim. Many of the mitzvot, particularly the more ritualistic ones, were understood by Rambam in the context of combating specific ancient Near Eastern beliefs and practices. So now, even if we work with Rambam's approach that monarchy is a mandatory mitzvah, the Torah's version, in order to be properly understood, in order for us to understand properly what the Torah is doing when it sets up this institution of uh, monarchy, it must be contrasted with the governing structures which existed in the surrounding societies of those times. The Torah can be seen to endorse a very different version from the type of dictatorship which existed in the ancient world, and indeed parts of the world today. As we will see, the specific limitations and mitzvot of a Jewish king are carefully framed in view of the realities and common practices of ancient monarchs. Jewish monarchy was a revolutionary concept in that the king is subject to Jewish law, laws which clearly delineate the bounds of his powers. In the typical ancient society, one of the primary functions of law was to subordinate the masses, to ensure that they remained the downtrodden property of the divinely appointed king, the king who remains above and unconstrained by the law. The very concept of a constrained, limited monarchy was a contradiction in terms in the ancient world. Against this backdrop, we have the Torah's instruction that says, when the people demand a king, this is what should happen. First and foremost, it's the people who decide they want a king. And the appointment based on the Torah's text appears to be done with their approval. The king's subordination to the rule of law is vividly demonstrated in a striking episode in the book of Melachim. Achav was depressed and angry at the refusal of one of his subjects, Navot, to sell him a vineyard, which was adjoining the king's palace. Isabel, Jezebel, Achav's foreign queen, is completely bewildered by her husband's difficulties. The concept of a limited monarchy to her was a contradiction in terms. She accuses him of not exercising sovereignty over Israel. The evil queen proceeds to take care of the situation for Achav in a manner typical of true dictatorships, putting on a sham show trial which sees Navot executed with false witnesses and her husband, Achav, goes to inherit the vineyard. But just as Achav is poised to take possession of his prize, he is confronted by the prophet Eliyahu, who strongly rebukes Achav as a murderous king and utters terrible curses and predictions leading to Achav's repentance before God. What we see from this episode is a very important episode. What we see from this are the very different conceptions held by Achav, the Jewish king, and Isabel, the Phoenician queen, of the very concept of monarchy. For Isabel, it was inconceivable that Achav, as king, could be restrained. If he wants the vineyard, he can go and take it. No one can stop him. Whereas Achav, who's no saint, as we see from the, from the Tanakh, he's certainly um, not looked up to as a, as a great king, but he came from the Jewish perspective of monarchy. He could not bring himself to suggest such a route for himself of holding a show trial, stealing the land off someone. The king's place within the power structure of Jewish government is then firmly demonstrated by Eliyahu, the prophet, coming along and rebuking the king, cursing the king. So this, very, this whole episode very clearly demonstrates that the king is not necessarily the sole head of the power structure. It is a limited, limited power that the king is being granted. We find many further examples of prophets rebuking kings for abuse of power. There's Nosan Hanavi confronting David HaMelech. There's the notable occasion of King Yoyakim who uses forced labor and Yirmiyahu tells him, Woe unto he who built his house with unrighteousness, who uses his neighbor's service without wages. He shall receive the burial of a donkey. So to summarize, 
when we talk about democracy versus dictatorship, these two extreme categories we build up in our minds, even putting aside the Barbara Burnell and others who understand that the Torah can be seen to endorse democracy, we need to recognize that the Torah's depiction of a king is not necessarily what we would associate historically with a dictatorial despot. It's a revolutionary idea of a limited dictatorship working within, not above the law. The unique concept of a Jewish monarch becomes even clearer when we look at the royal laws set out in the continuation of the passage. Let's have a look at some of the, some of the laws of a king set out in Parashat HaMelech. He can't amass many horses. Then it says, He can't have too many wives. He can't amass too much gold and silver. What do these specific restrictions represent in the ancient Near Eastern context? What are the roles and responsibilities of a Jewish king? The limitations which are placed on the king's ability to amass wives, wealth, and horses are representative of the king's restricted status and power. Horses, cavalry in the ancient world, represented strength of army. Military power. Wives meant royal alliances. Those of you familiar with European history will know this was common all over Europe to marry members of other royal households and to build and consolidate power and alliances. The role of the Jewish king is not to be like that of regular monarchies, building up huge armies, military powers and alliances, often at the expense of domestic development. So too, gold and silver, he shall not amass quantities of gold and silver. He's not there to exploit the national economy in order to boost his ego and build monuments. Rather, what is he supposed to do? He shall write a Torah scroll. We're told in the, in the Mepharshim that he writes two Torah scrolls. One he keeps at home, the other he takes around with him to read. The Torah must influence both the governmental policy-making within his palace, as well as his everyday interactions outside the palace with his subjects. So with these restrictions, we see that the form of monarchy and dictatorship the Torah envisages is entirely different from what we see in monarchies and dictatorships in other cultures and other countries and other scenarios. Are there any questions at this stage? No, there's just a couple of comments. Uh, oh. Daniel, did you want to briefly elaborate on... Uh... Oh, I just thought it was a very interesting point that was being made in terms of the uh, kings and rulers that you have as an example in terms of, of these authors. So in the uh, uh, time of Eben Ezra and, um, and uh, 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 the Rambam, you've got um, these effectively religious despots sweeping up from uh, uh, from north africa you've got um christian kings in in northern europe who rule by sort of divine right and the question is who's in charge the king or the pope right and uh, but then you have this very uh, you, you it's very intrigued by the comment you made about the abravanel considering who he's contemporary with so firstly he's on you know first name terms, we've seen Ferdinand and Isabella up close how they how they operate, and at the same time, it, so you're saying that he's he's in favour of the 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 ways that the republics in Italy. He, he I think he mentions Venice and Venice, Florence, Italy. if I if I remember right. If I remember okay, correctly. so the uh, Florence, so he's coming in, I guess, about 20, 30 years after the Pazzi conspiracy, after Savonarola. And actually, he's more or less contemporary with Machiavelli um, under, under uh, Soderini. So it's a very interesting period for this is, if you like, the, where the cutting edge of what Hachem Four would rely on, would call uh, cunning humanity is, uh, is, uh, is sort of running, is running the show. But yet again, you've got some very interesting models. I mean, similarly, I mean, Venice, the, the ducal system, it's also it's effectively an oligarchy, but it has elements of, of democracy. I haven't quite looked at who was in power in Venice. <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's an interesting thing. And then you've got Rambam, he's experiencing then the, the um, Ayyubid dynasty in Egypt under, uh, uh, at the time of Salah Hadin. And 
again, this is this is not a very different model though that you're seeing popping up here. But it's, but it's an interesting point. Right, so I like the, someone like the Nativ who gives a general framework to fit all of these together. They can all be applicable in the right time and place. So we've seen so far the unique or the very distinctive function of Jewish monarchy, which is there as a limited monarchy and and there are safeguards in place, so to speak, to try and stop him from running everything as a, as a, for the, the country for the sake of the military, for his, his personal ego. We've also got some indications as to the particular aspirations of a Jewish monarchy. So if we look at Yeshayahu, the second chapter of Yeshaya, I'm not going not to go through the whole, the whole passage now. It's a, it's a prophecy for the Messianic era. And we find we're told that the nations will stream into Yerushalayim to learn from us. Our role, the role of the, the Jewish people, will be typified and brought about by a righteous king who will judge and teach the nations. His role is to influence the world via wisdom, intellectual, moral, spiritual teachings, not conquering via the sword and military alliances and wealth, but conquering the minds of the nations with his teachings and his values. And as a result of these teachings, Yeshua tells us, is the famous prophecy, the nations that have learnt from Jerusalem, from this righteous king, will renounce the sword. They too will be inspired to focus their aspirations on Torah wisdom rather than military power, a real disarmament treaty. So we see both that the, <clears throat> we see that the, both the functions and the great aspirations of a king, we see, and the, the, this is, we see traces of this already at the time of uh, Shlomo HaMelech. We see that the Queen of Sheba comes to visit him because of the great wisdom that he's become famed for. And there are sort of messianic allusions there in the, in the Pesukim also. So we see that there are particular functions and aspirations that, uh, that if, especially for the messianic era, or the, or bringing about the messianic era, which monarchy is associated with. And even a Barbanel, who as we saw, writes strongly against the monarchy. It seems that even Abar Bonel in his commentary on Hashem, he agrees to this messianic ideal. He discusses the beneficial and the necessary return of the Davidic royal dynasty. So again, minimizing this, what appears at the outset to be a, a huge gulf between Abar Bonel, who's saying the whole thing is discouraged, and Rambam, who's saying it's an obligation. We do find that when it comes to the bringing about the messianic era, when the right king comes along to, to bring the world back to where it's supposed to be, the Abarbanel is somewhat in favor of that, or he's completely in favor of that. Um, I'm going to switch now to theocracy. We discussed democracy, we discussed, we discussed uh, monarchy, a dictatorship. There's one other point that someone brought up today when I was discussing it on the, the Facebook group, which is anarchy, which again is uh, not something which we'd ever assume the Torah endorses, but it's actually quite interesting. When, you, when you're looking at the, we're talking about the messianic ideal, the sort of governance which will, uh, the king that will bring about the messianic era. Well, once the messianic era is up and running and functioning, but you, you can question, will there need to be any government at all? This utopian messianic era, there are those that argue that the true ideal of the Torah is one in which there's no need and therefore no role for a government to keep law and order and to ensure the effective running of the country. In such a utopian messianic era, maybe guidance from prophets will suffice. You'll have prophets getting up there giving guidance and you won't need any sort of government system, some kind of religious positive anarchy. There's plenty to discuss here. I'm not really going to go into it. So I just found this interesting point someone had brought up. We find at the end of Rambam's Hilchot Melachim, he describes the, the, what, will, what the Messianic era will consist of. He talks about the world being awash with wisdom and people seeking out the way of God. But will human nature change? He talks about there'll be no jealousy, there'll be no competition, no war, no scarcity. So Will this remove the need for any governments? I don't know. It's hard to say anything definitive. But uh, I just wanted to put that on the map. But once we're talking about the ideal state and the, and the ideal monarchy, it could be argued that that's only an initial stage of the Messianic era. And once the Messianic king has gone and done his thing, effectively the 
utopian society, so to speak, won't need any real governments uh, any, any more than that. So yeah, moving on to theocracy now, it's a bit of a dirty word, it's kind of a bit of a bad reputation, perhaps for, for good reason. We've discussed the desirability and the role of a Jewish, of a king in Jewish thought. So the final part of this Chaburah will look at theocracy, the relationship between the king and the government and religious leadership. Theocracy is generally defined as a form of government in which a deity of some type is recognized as the supreme ruling authority, giving divine guidance to a human intermediary who will then manage the day-to-day -day affairs of the government. So you've got some kind of intermediary who's recognized as a direct representative of God, basically running the country, managing all the day-to-day -day matters. That is a theocracy. So the Jewish people in the Midbar, in the desert, would likely have qualified as a theocracy. God issued rulings, direct pronouncements as to how the desert camp should function via the prophecy of Moshe, his recognized intermediary, so to speak. But what about the system that the Torah envisages being set up once the nation is established in the land of Israel? So there's a fascinating essay written by the run, Rabbeinu Nisim of Girona. It's in his Derashat Haran on the start of Parashat Shofetim. So Rabbeinu Nisim sets out distinct prerogatives and roles of the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, and the king. The role of the king, he explains, is like that of any government of any country, to provide a system of justice which maintains law and order and effective running of the country. The primary role of the king and the government is to run the country effectively. The Jewish king and the Jewish government, just like that of any other country. The Sanhedrin, on the other hand, the religious court, is supposed to take care of the religious side of things. They are charged with dispensing what Rabbeinu Nisim calls Mishpat Tzedek Amiti, the true concept of justice, divine justice, he goes on to explain. <coughs> Sorry. The divine nature of the Sanhedrin's task is seen from the fact that they can only judge capital cases, they only, only have their full powers when seated in their official chambers adjoining the Beit HaMikdash. They are a religious court, they have a religious arm of government, so to speak, and therefore they must, their place is adjoining the Beit HaMikdash in the chamber of, uh, of hewn stone. So we see the king and the Sanhedrin have two different roles and functions. The day-to-day -day running of the kingdom was not directly controlled by a religious body or a prophet. The king did not have control over the religious laws of the nation. That was the function of the Supreme Court, later called the Sanhedrin. What about the prophecy? I need to check this. I think, according to the Rambam, none of the kings, none of the Judean kings or the kings of Israel were actually prophets. David, Shlomo, Hizkiyahu, Despite being personally righteous, having Ruach HaKodesh, they were all communicated to and at times severely rebuked by independent prophetic messengers. The king was certainly not seen as a divine intermediary of any sort, but rather he was subordinate and dependent upon the religious teachings and messages of the prophet. So to the priesthood, the Kehuna, it was kept distinct from the monarchy. There was one particular occasion where Uzziah HaMelech, who was, again, one of the more righteous kings, and he'd had a military victory. He was very, he got a bit ahead of himself. And he goes and he offers Ketoret, he offers uh, uh, an offering in the Beit HaMikdash, which is only for the Kehuna, and he gets stricken with leprosy, with Tzarat. So we see the monarchy and the priesthood, the monarchy and the prophecy, the monarchy of the Sanhedrin are kept very separate. And again, this is very different to the role of the king in most ancient societies, in which the king is the prime worshipper in the temple. He gets some status of some kind of demigod, the divine right of king. He's, and everything that he does takes on this kind of divine approval and divine status. So to summarize, we asked, does the Torah endorse a theocracy? Meaning, does it envisage a system in which the king, as an intermediary for God, manages the day-to-day -day affairs of the government. And in response, we've seen from Rabbeinu Nisim that much of the day-to-day -day running of the state is performed by a king or government which is distinct from the religious institutions of the Sanhedrin, the prophet, the priesthood. This means that the king 
cannot easily claim automatic divine backing for things like tax rates and public spending, which are not discussed in Torah law. Again, I, I don't know this uh, for a fact. I assume if you go and you, you challenge the, the basic, so to speak, secular government's uh, aspects of the Iranian regime, if you challenge their tax rates, you challenge their public spending, you're accused of going against God's will because the government is God's representative through the Ayatollahs. Whereas in the Torah, the, the government is seen as distinct from the religious institutions. While there is some kind of mitzvah not to be moret b'malchus, not to rebel against the king, the king can't claim divine legitimacy and backing for any specific policy that he brings in. And it seems, as we said... Can I just say, I mean, you can tell mm -hmm. come back later, the, there is a very distinct um, theory of government in Iran based on the, um, the doctrine of Wilaya uh, Tafahi, which is the, a, a book by uh, Khomeini, in fact. He was a great jurist in this respect. And he, it was quite a radical departure where he says this is effectively direct government by the, rep, by the, by the clergy, which is actually unprecedented in, in Shia side of things. It's quite revolutionary in its own way. So is that true? So if, so if someone objects to, let's say, a taxation, a, a rule of tax, they're effectively... No, there's a, there's a rule of law. It's just that the rule of law is also subject to things like the Council of Guardians, and which is effectively a House of Lords of senior clerics, a Council of Taurus Ages, if you will. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and the Supreme Guardian, who at the moment is uh, Khamenei, so who has his own views on things. So, okay. So, so the contrast to that, we're seeing that the king the, the, and the, under the Jewish system is kept well apart from the religious laws of worship, um, from, the, from the functioning of the Sanhedrin, the prophet, the priesthood. And there, there are sometimes some sort of minor overlaps in their roles, but I don't think that it's sufficient for the Torah system to be labelled in any way a real theocracy. I do want to say, however, it should be borne in mind that while the Jewish monarchy is not a classic theocracy, it is still expected to promote adherence to Judaism, symbolised by the hakel. Once every seven years, the king gets up and reads from the Torah scroll to the entire nation. The Torah appears to reject the idea of a separation between church and state in the American sense, where in theory there's supposed to be no association or promoted with or promotion of religion by governmental bodies. While the monarchy or governing institution is not seen as a direct representative of God and his will, neither is it intended to be entirely secular. And this is part of a broader point where Shimshon Rafael Hirsch, another major Jewish thinker who features heavily in Judaism Reclaimed, he asserts that there's no such thing as a secular realm in Jewish thought. Not only is there no such thing as a secular government or, or, a, uh, or a secular uh, separation of powers, there is no such thing as secular altogether. He emphasizes, he argues this very strongly, uh, par partly against the trend of German Jewry at the time, we do not stop serving God when we close the Chumash or we exit the doors of the Beit Knesset. Every step we take, every move we make, where we walk, how we walk, what we look at, what we think about, and most importantly, how we interact with the people around us in the street and elsewhere, these are all fundamentally religious matters. These can't be termed secular. The Book of Devarim provides detailed guidance from the Torah as to how the Jewish monarchy and governing institutions should function. They, like all Jewish life, should be infused with and display the moral and spiritual values of the Torah. So it's not a theocracy, but the king, more than anyone else, as much as anyone else, should be infused by, be promoting, be adhering to the, to the teachings of the Torah. So to summarize everything we said tonight, then we'll leave it here. It's getting quite late in Jerusalem. There is certainly some debate as to the nature of the commandment to appoint a king. For the Rambam, we saw it seems to be obligatory. For the Barbanel, it's dangerous and only begrudgingly permitted. However, we saw the Nativ's perspective. This can depend on the times and the needs of the people. The lawlessness we saw at the end of the period of Shoftim needed a king, a strong central authority to restore law and order. At other times, it's Sakat Nefashot to impose a strong leader on a nation who, the, the, where the people cannot take that kind of uh, imposed dictator. 
that is going to lead to bloodshed. We saw that the dispute may be narrower than it first appears. Both sides appear to agree in the ideal of a messianic king to draw the Jews and indeed the entire world towards God's will. Most importantly, we saw that even according to the Rambam and those who endorse appointing a king as an obligatory command, the Torah's vision of king is almost unrecognizable from the self-serving dictatorships historically associated with the term monarchy. And lastly, we saw the different ways in which the king's prerogative and role is separated from religious leadership. While the king is generally supposed to promote adherence to God's will and inspire the nation forward religiously, morally, spiritually, he is kept institutionally distinct from the priesthood, the prophecy, the Sanhedrin, bodies which represent control over the Torah's ritual, spiritual, and legal dimensions. And the king is not seen as is done in theocracies. He is not seen as some kind of divine intermediary and, and to represent God to the nation. Thank you very much, everyone. And any, any questions? Thank you very much, Raf. That was fantastic. Um, really interesting to see how, even on the point of rules of governance, the Hachamim had differing opinions on how they interpreted certain things. So, you know, we had Professor Zvi Zohar uh, a couple of weeks back who showed how, you know, arguably theological things were debated amongst Hachamim, but now even with regards to governance, there was, there was such a variety. A spectrum, uh, you know, a narrow spectrum, but, but nevertheless a spectrum. Does anybody have any questions that they'd like to ask? I know here we've got Joel's iPhone. Are there any other rabbis who discuss and reject this parallel system of governance and separation of powers that Ran speaks about? Interesting. Well, I, I noticed that, that the uh, Abara Bernal, again, it just ties into the other part of the Chabura, that Abara Bernal doesn't see the king is existing in an ideal form. So he sees both of these functions being carried out by the Sanhedrin. But if I understood it correctly, that's the Sanhedrin almost wearing two distinct hats. They've got their, their governing hat and they've got their religious hats. But yeah, I'm not sure exactly how that would work. But yeah, that doesn't seem to be so much of a two-tier system. I had, a, I had a question myself with regards to, you know, we talk about is it a theocratic state, is the ideal Jewish state a theocratic state? We may say that a theocracy, um, we may say that we don't have somebody who, uh, you know, as an intermediary that would define the Jewish state as being a theocracy. But could we say that the Torah is a theocratic agent, in a sense? Well, to an extent, but we say that the Torah is given over to the people to some extent to interpret. So it's a question of how you how you balance the theocracy in in, in its in the strongest sense of the words is a ruling body or a ruling person who's imposing divine will on people or representing divine will, rather than a sort of set a set of laws which is being used by the people in order to govern. I'm, yeah, I'm, right. I'm not sure if we define that as a theocracy. Right. We've got a question here from Neil. Was there any discussion about establishing a monarchy in the modern state, particularly from Rabbanim? Um, not that I know of. I remember there's a lot of discussion about uh, establishing a Sanhedrin. Um, it's funny, actually, you mentioned that about the Sanhedrin. I was listening to a, a shiur that was given by Hacham uh, Yosef Faur, who uh, unfortunately passed away a couple of months ago, it was a shiur that he had given on Maran, on Rav Yosef Faur, and he, as he was giving the shiur, he mentioned that he was invited, Hacham uh, Yosef Faur was invited to be on the Sanhedrin in Israel, and when he went for the meeting, this was, uh, I don't know, I don't know, he was younger, I would probably say maybe 40 years ago. Right. Yes, 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 yes. And um, he said he, he, when he went to the first meeting, and in the first meeting they had uh, decided to make a statement against the government of Israel. And Hacham Faur got up and left and said, this is not what the role of the Sanhedrin is. Um, it's supposed to be separate. So um, it's interesting to see what the limits of Sanhedrin it's be a profit uh, intervention is. Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. Well, this is, this is uh, an interesting point here. It's, you're talking about governmental institutions, 
right? This is the difference between the model of um, actually this idea of Judaism being a religion, which is not a Jewish word at all, it's a mm -hmm. word, and it's and Ju Judaism being a dean, a, 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 if you like, this idea of a, 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 a viable nation, a blueprint for a nation which has been put into cold storage for the t against the time at, at which it can be reactivated. So, I mean, this is really where, where my sort of question comes in. Is there anybody who seriously disagrees with the idea of the, the crowns, the, the, the crowns as a, separ as, a, as a separation of powers, as a mode of as a blueprint for governance, because it seems to me that if you, if you accept that, you can't possibly think that Judaism is just a thing for like being religious. It's clearly a, a blueprint for how to run a culture. I think people who who sit down and study all of that will probably agree with you, but just we we don't associate it after it's two thousand years of exile. We just don't associate it with the idea. Of, Judaism running a country at all, but yeah, so so much of the it's the the Chumash, the Halacha, the Gemara is taken up with the governing institutions and the, the courts and the the kings and the Sanhedrin. Yeah, you're right. Yep, as my Rebbe says, uh, Judaism is very much a, uh, is the framework of Jewish existence to maintain a semblance of this legal Torah while we're in Galut. Um, so there's definitely that distinction between, a, a, you know, a legal nation and a, a, and a religion of scaffolding to maintain our identity uh, during Galut. We've got a couple of other questions here. Um, Ohad asks, and at the end, uh, sorry, didn't the Davidic king judge cases? He was able to have a bed in or even judge by himself? That's uh, a brilliant question. I've been wondering about that for a while. The one thing that occurred to me is if you look at the way they judged, they weren't generally judging what we see as Torah law. I mean, the, the great example of Solomon splitting the baby, I don't think you find that, <laughs> you find that recommended anywhere. As him possibly, I mean, and I, I don't know this for sure, this seems like him judging in his role as governing, keeping law and order, um, rather than necessarily in, in being a judge in the Sanhedrin system of applying Torah law. And but, I think yeah, we have, I'm not 100% sure about that. We see both though. We see that there's law and order, almost like a mediation. But then we also see that he has that Davido Bedino in regards to sexual issues of, you know, religious, religious separation between men and women. So he does sit on those cases as well. That's a very good point. Right? The Gemara brings in that, that Shlomo made various religious enactments. Yeah, it's a very good point. Yeah, good question. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. This is such an interesting topic. It's not a topic that's usually addressed often. Although, again, sometimes you find that, late, that you find late in the Gemara, things are attributed back to various eras and various people and their bet din. It doesn't necessarily mean that they were personally involved. When we, we uh, again, I'm hearing things that when you look at the the line of the Masorah, the, the Rambam brings down um, so and so passed on to so and so, passed on to so and so. It's often so and so in the, their bet din from so and so in their bet din, and it's not necessarily the individuals involved. So, if the bet din of Shlomo or David necessarily means that they were involved, or was the bet din of the era? Again, I don't know. It's uh, I don't know. Is it a better question than an answer? <laughs> Is it, is it not, surely the, the role of the king is really uh, restricted to law and order unless they have, unless they have expertise. I mean, it, the indication of this surely is that you've got Melachim and Milchamot in Mishneh Torah, right? That's the role of the king. The king is the, if you like, the ch he's the chief of staff. He's the commander of the armed forces. He's charged with the national defense and maintaining law and order. Right. And we we do see in the Parashat Hamelech he's got to yeah. he's got to write the, the Torah scroll and carry it with him everywhere. But yeah, that's yeah, that seems primary. Yes, I agree with that. But again, if we look at the messianic visions, he's there inspiring everyone as well. So it does doesn't mean he can't do that. But that's not his primary function. Yeah. Any other questions? And again, how much we take from that to. Uh, yeah. Well, we're legislating from messianic pronouncements. Though. Right, as I say, how much you take from that to, to, to work back to where we are now, it's, it's pretty difficult.
Well, it's, just, it's what I said uh, in the in the chat. Really, you can you can have a sort of like uh, oh, I haven't looked a wonderful. Uh, I mean, she probably haven't seen it, but it's like someone's still going to take out the garbage, and that has to be paid for. So that that replies taxation. Right. So they they definitely. I mean, the taxation, as I mentioned in passing, isn't isn't legislated at all. We we find that Shlomo is taxing possibly a little bit too much but it seems to be presumed that that will happen but that's not sort of uh, yeah we don't find any legislation that he can he can put an income tax at five percent ten percent fifteen percent but we do find that when there was a public need for something the building of the beta mcdash there was some form of taxation yeah. was so presumed without saying that was he argued then that actually the analog to the, the civil service and the tax and the, and the tax authorities is actually the beta mcdash after all they get they get tithes they get bikurim it's the priesthood, right? Yeah, but you know they have a certain fun function which is neutral and for the public good under the law. Okay. Yeah, I think I think we're for, we're forgetting that there's going to be an AI world where a lot of these things won't be needed to be done by humans. Uh, so let's prepare for that. Rob Phillips, thank That's you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, thank you so much. Such a fascinating topic that I think doesn't get addressed uh, so often. I, I haven't seen it really come across uh, that much. Uh, really, really, really insightful. Really appreciate it, especially given the fact that it's almost midnight for you. Uh, we look forward to your future contributions to the uh, Sephardi Beth Midrash. And uh, please, everyone, JudaismReclaim.com. Highly, highly recommended. Uh, and see you all next week, please God, with Diane Offer Livnat of the Sephardi Beth Din giving us a class on the authority of the Hachamim. How did the Rambam versus the Ramban deal with this uh, concept of the Hachamim and their authority? So looking forward to seeing you all next week. Raf Phillips again. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank, thank you, you for the it. arranging. Thank you for inviting Kala me. Kala thank you everyone for coming. Good Take care. Good evening. Thank you very much. Zakaruch. Thank you. Thank you for going. It's catching us on with the chat here. <laughs>